Well, today we are at Vienna at one of the flag towers and we have a special guest, Chifton, Nicholas Moyne. Hey lads. It's a lovely city. I mean, I, people don't realize this. My parents live here. So I'm, I'm actually just on a bit of a vacation on my own time. I was uh, down at Panzer Museum last week doing some filming. So guess what? We'll be doing some Panzers on my channel. And uh, so we, I respect uh, Bernard's work. I said, hey, Bernard, I'm going to be in Vienna. Do you want to meet up? It's uh, evidently said yes. Of course I did. I mean, this, I usually don't like to go to Vienna, but I definitely make an exception for you. This isn't the bad Compared to a lot of cities I've been in, at least this, this is a pretty city with a lot of character. Well, I always say there's a difference between visiting a city and living there. There is that. I would never recommend anybody live in New York City. I'm, so, I'm sorry, New York, but no. Great place to visit. But if, if you saw my quick tour of the New York Museum, uh, it, it was a case of, yeah, I've got a day in New York and I'm not spending in New York. I'm getting the hell out of town. <laughs> that's, that's just me. So we talked about earlier and you mentioned that you're seen very often as a Sherman defender. Yes, um, because I, I do not subscribe to the common perception of the vehicle being a death trap. And there are figures that support it. Now, I, I don't actually... I don't view myself as my job to defend the Sherman per se. I go over all the tanks and I look at a tank and I say, look, I find this works and I find this doesn't. This is a good feature about this tank. This is a bad feature about this tank. And if my opinion is not the same as any other, so be it. So, I mean, I, I filmed now, I've been on an early war batch recently and I, I firmly believe right now that the Panzer III was quite probably the best tank in the world at the beginning of World War II. You can make maybe an argument for the Panzer IV because of the... But people don't, don't agree, you know, don't like to hear that. Oh, the French had the best tank because look at the Somois, look at the Charby. It's kind of like... No three-man turret. No, no three-man turret. And that's, that's enough of the discussion. <laughs> that's a very good start. <laughs> and just the, abil the ability to use them, even in the driver's seat. I'm very comfortable in the driver's seat of a Panzer III. You've seen me in the videos and what I'm like in the Somois or, or God help me, one of the two-man French Yokies. Uh, some of the British vehicles are the same. Uh, Matilda II, it's an okay tank, but it's not as good as a Panzer III. But again, people will always focus on the hard elements. How thick was the armor? Could the gun kill it? Oh yeah, look at, look at the Char B1 because Bilot uh, went and he went into stone and he destroyed 17 Panzers. Yes, he did. How many, you, how many Char Bs did Bilot start with before he got to stone? And what happened to the rest of his platoon? Why was Bilot on his own? People don't think about that level. Yeah. So when it comes to the Sherman, it's like, look, Sherman has a lot of advantages and a lot of disadvantages. Everybody knows that Sherman could have done with a slightly more powerful gun. I bet everybody admits it. But did it really matter in the big scheme of things? And for what Sherman was designed to do, again, you go on to my various different uh, talks where I talk about the logistical problems behind it. No, nobody cares about logistics. And, yeah, you could have that discussion with the German army when they invaded the Soviet Union. But that's uh, an important detail. Uh, but because I am very aggressive, and possibly too much so, but it is with good intention, very aggressive about putting forward the advantages that Sherman has that a lot of other people will forget, I think that's why I've gotten this reputation of being a defender. So uh, Sherman was a great tank. We didn't lose many American tankers. Don't be silly. It was a death trap. I, I, I'm one interesting point. You, you, what, what did they actually the German military think about the Sherman? I mean, they fought them. 
That's a very good question. So everybody talks about how an American or a British tank will climb into a captured panther. Gee, I wonder how they captured the panther with their Sherman. And they get in and they realize, oh, the optic in this is so clear, I can see a blade of grass at a thousand meters, which quite possibly was true. The Germans had excellent quality of optics. Their layout sucked, but the quality was outstanding. And they got this wonderful big gun and they have lots of armor. So that's as far as the typical Sherman tank will go and they don't think so much about all the possibilities that a, a German commander would have for not taking use of it. So, you know, if you ask an American, would he prefer to be in battle in a Panther or in a Sherman, what should he pick? And because that's a loaded question, you're expected to say the Panther. Let's take it one further. We know from the statistics that 18% of riflemen in the American army were killed, 3% of tankers. If you then said, okay, choose your tank, but if it happens that your tank is not operating on the day of the battle, you go as infantry, you might suddenly have a reflection <laughs> as to what is more important to you at that moment in time, logistics or the, or the armor. So that, that is a very common thing. So as you're saying, we don't hear what the Germans thought of Sherman. So when, when I was at Panzer Museum uh, last week, I asked the director, Ralph, in, in an interview, which I'm sure will come out eventually, what was the German perception? And it was almost the exact reverse. And he said, well, if you talk to, let's say, a Tiger crewman, you say, ah, oh, Germans, I killed them easily. But as you go up in rank, when you get up to, let's say, company or battalion level, you start having a slightly different reflection on them. Because although, yeah, you can probably kill one or two without too much trouble if the situation, um, long, long, detailed discussion. But let's say, although other things being equal, a Tiger or a Panther will knock off a couple of Shermans. The problem from the commander's perspective is you keep losing the battles. And is the object of a weapon of war to win battles or is it to win wars? This is the whole issue. Well, one of my professors told me you can't write history from, from the trench. Because no. this is the trench perspective or like the, the tanker perspective and then you have to go to the tactical, operational and yeah. finally... It's, it's a very level. important part of it and you cannot ignore it. But then people think that just because Sherman was fantastic logistically, it's, oh, we just send hundreds of Shermans at them and okay, the Germans will kill 10, we got, we got 15. It's not a problem. Well, yes and no. We lost a lot of tanks, but we can make machines. And, and you have very few crew losses. This is Th that, That's what people don't believe. So, I mean, even yesterday on one of my, uh, one of my YouTube uh, uh, videos, uh, people are yelling at me for making up things and being a liar and how, how few... Because if the Adjutant General's report states that 1,470, give or take, American tankers were killed in all of World War II. This, it's like... I, I, I even can't really believe that. It, it's an astoundingly nothing. low figure. And that's for all types of tank in all theaters. So from the Pacific to the European. Now, the vast majority of them were killed in Western Europe. Uh, but still, it is an incredibly low number. So, I mean, you, you land in Casablanca. You go all the way, so from your camera's perspective, you land in Casablanca, go all the way across. You have your disaster at Casarine Pass, which, if you look into it, was a reversal, but it wasn't a complete disaster. I mean, we, we recovered fairly quickly. Then went on into Tripoli, and then hopped into Sicily, and then hopped in Italy, went all the way up Italy, until we finally stopped at the end of World War II, and there were 80, 80 American tankers were killed in that, in that whole campaign. It's like... It's, yeah. And, and people, but how is that possible? Because you lost hundreds of tanks. So, yes, we did. But there were tanks that were very safe and very easy to get out. Oh, the, the, the Sherman was a Tommy cooker. What tank wasn't? I mean, look at the burn rates of a Crusader. Look at the burn rate of a Panzer IV. I, 
I, I can go into speculation as to why Sherman in particular got that reputation. No, I'm not going to right now, but it wasn't all that much of a problem. Was it also due to training? Because one thing in a tank, you need to get out as fast as possible once it hits. And I know some tanks you can't barely get in. <laughs> so what was this? Or was there a strong focus on training, or was it more ergonomic? I, I would go with ergonomics. So again, people come. People don't believe I'm actually a tanker by training. So U.S. Army officer, Armor Branch. I'm a qualified Abrams tanker. Gone abroad, did a bad lease. And so I am too tall to be a tanker. I'm six foot five, one meter ninety-eight for your uh, everybody else in the world. And uh, is this a problem? So well, no, for two or three reasons. One, I'm the commander, so I, I have the hatch open, my head's out anyway. So if somebody shoots me, okay, I'll get inside. But if I'm uncomfortable, that's the least of my problems that moment in time. And it's only for a short time anyway. Uh, the second problem is that American tanks are very well designed. By accident or on purpose, I fit comfortably in them. And people, well, the, the Soviets just picked shorter tankers. Okay, but why limit your resource pool? Well, the Germans were shorter back then. Well, yes, the Americans were shorter back then as well. But I fit very well in a Sherman. I fit very well in a Chafee, a light tank. I, I can fit in them. What were the Americans doing that allowed this to happen? That I, as a ridiculously oversized tanker, can operate this tank effectively. So if I could operate it effectively, what would the typical person at the time be doing? He'd be incredibly comfortable, incredibly effective. And then I've started, I don't do it enough because of a couple of different reasons, but I've started the, oh bugger, the tank is on fire test, where I'm sitting in, you know, Pick, pick a seat. Oh, bugger, the tank is on fire. How quickly can I get out? And if you look at a panther because of the way it's kind of forward and the tiger is offset or the commander thatch for the panther and they're crank, 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 crank to get the hatch open. And then I do it on a small hatch Sherman. Oh, bugger, the tank is on fire. Twist up, out, I'm on the ground in like four seconds flat. You can't do that in almost any other tank. So we lost a lot of tanks. But people don't, there's this cognitive dif difference that we, or cognitive dissonance, yeah, I think is the term, uh, that this must require that you lost a lot of crewmen. And the other thing is, all the, of these 70, uh, 1,470 odd personnel, at least a third, maybe up to half, were not even in the tank at the time that they were killed. So artillery strikes, roadside uh, sniper attacks, whatever. Uh, now, you add to that a couple of officers, because officers were not candidate armored force, and the occasional random clerk or cook that got you know, bought up. But even if you add 30%, you 2,000 people. Yeah, it's... That's, it's in, in all the carnage of World War II, at 100,000 infantry, 100, I think it's 118,000 infantrymen. And the Air Force, I mean, they lost quarter million or something. Some ridiculous lines. amount. It's, it's, so this is... Now, how, how many people did you, you did the start of dust boot? X many thousand uh, Kriegsmarine U-boat sailors I were killed. I think two-thirds were killed the whole of that went. Yeah, something like that. So well, like, I think it had the highest attrition rate, yeah. yeah. But how, how many Shermans did you lose? Do you know that now? Um, off the top of my head, I'm thinking four to five thousand, more, maybe more. We lost quite a few. And, and, and do you know the, by incident, uh, the, how many were wounded? Because... Yes, uh, not off the top of my head, but to say it's online. You, you just do a Google search for uh, Adjutant General's report of battle casualties 1941 to 1946, something like that. And, and it will come up as 100 odd pages and it splits it up by rank, by branch, by wounded, by return, uh, died of wounds, returned to action, uh, returned to the US and killed. 
I think wasn't it uh, that the British had way higher tankman losses due to not wearing helmets or something, or is this a myth? Um, it is a sort of a semi-supported supposition. So we know how many people were killed in your typical American unit in Sherman's. We know how many were killed because the, the British Army did their own study in Sherman's as well. And the figure was higher for the British unit than the American unit. So assuming that they have the same tanks and more or less similar opposition and more or less similar tactics, what is the main difference? Now, the British Army also did a medical report in the 1940s that stated that uh, I think some 40% of casualties were wounded in the area which would have been covered by the Royal Armoured Corps helmet had they been wearing one. Now, that doesn't mean to say that they would have all been stopped by the helmet because the helmet will only stop so much. But you have to assume that of that percentage, a lot of them would have survived had they been wearing a helmet, had they been given a helmet that was properly designed. And uh, so, yes, it is my conclusion that I haven't seen anybody else specifically in writing in 1946 saying it is concluded that British had higher casualty rates than the Americans. But it seems to be a reasonable conclusion that the British had higher casualty rates because they didn't wear helmets. Hmm. Yeah, that's would also make so it's again how you use the equipment to a certain degree probably well and, and the other thing is I mean, if I'm inside the tank and there are so many things inside that can kind of go bash and kill and I, I, I can't imagine operating an armored vehicle without wearing a hard cover I, I just don't know how I mean everyone obviously they did it <laughs> German army British army they all wear their helmets and uh, correction berets and they look very snazzy but I don't know how they manage to avoid knocking themselves out all the time. Yeah, I mean, I have only been in a few tanks, but everything is really tight and also very sharp. So, so and and yeah, any anything, it's like if you hit yourself, you usually hit your head and you hit it on a very edgy Hard. steel plate. And the, the way we put it is a tank is designed to hurt people. It doesn't care who or how. I mean, mm. actually this here, I'm not sure if you can see this. Um, we we make no Um This here is from uh, from me getting out of a T55 turret. That's uh, and and I had a, I had a, I had a thing on and I, I I just I just moved up there in the wrong way, and I I, I just I just um, barely touched it and yeah and then yeah we, we we call them tank bites. Yeah. So I have one myself in my arm from an ammunition door that uh, unfortunately we forgot to kill the circuit breaker and the thing opens up in my arm. Oh. I, I blessed the designer for putting a pressure sensor on the other side. I knew there was a pressure sensor on the closing side. I didn't know there was one on the opening side. So I'm mucking around in the commander's ready rack. Uh, I hit the trip switch. The circuit breaker hadn't been disabled. My bad for not verifying that the loader had done it. And as the thing is opening, I'm going, I, I can't get my arm out. Oh crap, I'm going to lose my arm as this half-ton door is coming towards me. And bless the designer for putting the, uh, <laughs> for putting the sensor on the, on the inside of it as well. Uh, I, I suspect a lot of tank manufacturers, especially back in World War II, wouldn't have bothered with such niceties. Yeah, definitely not. And I assume also that, uh, I mean, just my assumption, not sure if it's true, but the, the American uh, car industry was probably one of the most well-developed. So a lot of things about ergonomics and everything else probably went also into production because you used civilians, as far as I know, in, in military production as well. Correct. Now, I, again, I haven't seen anything directly assessing the ergonomics of a tank 
as a science. Not until at least late war or the early post-war, then uh, ballistics research labs. No, no, it wasn't. It was uh, the medical labs. Uh, Army medical labs did started doing assessments of ergonomic capabilities, but I've only seen those after, uh, shortly after World War II finished. But there was always, uh, during the assessment reports at Aberdeen, uh, you'll see uh, it is observed that the, uh, uh, that the gunner's controls are poorly positioned and must be positioned elsewhere, which is, which is another issue that people think that I have, I have a gripe against a 17-pounder. You know, Firefly was the best of the Sherman tanks. I disagree. I think the 76 was a better tank. But because, again, people look at the top Trump's statistics, what's the penetration, what's the armor, 17 pound woods. Yeah, until he realized that the gunner is reaching down like this and his head is up here and is traversing, trying, trying to operate this vehicle. Uh, and when the American army did their assessment of Firefly, it was one of the things they came into trouble for. It's, look, the, the loader is cramped, the gunner is cramped. Um, when they wanted to initially put the 76 into the small turret, uh, they rejected it because, look, the engineers say this works. Granted, it works. You don't have to fight in a bloody thing. Uh, so it was another question I asked, um, I think it was Hillary, Hillary Doyle, uh, a Panzer Museum. And uh, I said, look, uh, as we were in front of the Panther, did the, uh, did the Waffenarm not get information back from the field? Like, let's say this, trend, this suspension is horrible because it takes us five hours to change one wheel or whatever. It says, well, yeah, they did get some of that, but I guess they weren't. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> they didn't concern. There's the engineering design and there is the practical design. And the two, and it seems to me the Germans went more for the engineers than for the operator level, whereas the US Army were very, very hard on making sure it's operator level. Yeah, in Germany, there was this, this weird combination of military and engineering. I mean, the, the engineers were not so well listened to as far as I know, and the military in certain ways was they had this quite a problem. So we think about Germany usually as being engineering dominated, but from what I read about the Wehrmacht, the, the engineering officers, the technical officers were actually like looked down upon. Like the logistics guys. Yeah, so it, it was kind of weird. And and about the thing with um, the gun and everything trumps everything, it's, it's quite interesting if you look at the Panzerwaffe, the German Panzerwaffe, the greatest victories they had when they had a, the mainstay was, was the Panzer, Panzer one, 1, which had basically two machine guns. Yeah, yeah I, I was ta again talking with Ralph about how they're going to reorient the, uh, the Panzer Museum to make a little bit more... Uh, it's, it's a great collection, it's a fantastic collection, but it's not very museum-y. There's no interpretation or anything else. And he says, oh yeah, I'm waiting for all these people to come in, and uh, they got this idea of the Blitzkrieg with the big Panzers, and then when you get to the you know, Blitzkrieg section, 1939 to 1941, it's Panzer 1, a bicycle and a horse. Yeah. And then when you get to the Tiger and the Panther, the headline is going to be uh, the failings of the, you know, yeah. or, or the, the decline of the German army. Uh, so he's kind of looking forward to that. <laughs> I mean, the, the, I think one of, what was the, was the Panzer Befehlswagen, was this the first command take actually? I'm not sure. I would believe it would be the, Pan yeah, the BF-1. The other, the other question I asked me, he didn't know the answer, is what was the first Berger Panther, uh, Panzer, the engineering recovery vehicle for the Panzer? He didn't know. I, I don't think there was anything I, I, before the four. No, I think uh, there's a Berger Panzer three. I think uh, recently I, I, uh, I, there was an armored recovery vehicle for the three. Because the reason I was, I was thinking about doing an infographic about the Panzer three, and I think there was an armored re recovery vehicle, and I was, I was myself a bit surprised. I mean, the Panzer III also had a Flammpanzer, which was in, I think, in 1942 or 1943, but already basically a little, little too late because then they were already defending. 
But I think there was a Berger Panzer three. There was a, uh, speaking of flamethrowers, so during uh, one of the Operation Think Tank uh, videos, the question was asked about the, uh, the flamethrower vehicles. And if I, I'm, it's been several years now, if I'm recalling correctly, Zaloga was saying that uh, vehicles like the, uh, the Flammenpanzer Jägerpanzer 38T, whatever, um, were used against the Maginot Line in 1944 when the Maginot Line was occupied by the Americans. I don't know about that. I, I mean, I'm not going to argue the man. I'm sure he's done his research. <laughs> he's, he wrote a book on the matter. <laughs> I mean, my, I, I've, I've written all of one book and it's on tank destroyers. So this would be during the Ardennes Offensive? Yes. Okay. Could be. Never heard about this. I, I only know about the, uh, the Flampanzer 3 and yeah, there was Flampanzer 2. And I think a lot of the, the French captured vehicles were, yeah, were for yeah, Barbarossa. The, the, also the, the B1 into, that were converted into Flampanzers and something, but but there's very little information about the flam panzers or their use in general out there. I don't know. Maybe you should just uh, give give Hilary Dole an email. I'm sure he could tell you. I should definitely do this. He's, yeah. Uh, I mean, the man is 75 years old, and there's no sign of him slowing down. Great <laughs> <laughs> credit to him at all. I mean, I, mean, I was there. We go. Geez, if I'm going to be clambering over the spanzer with you, so oh, I do yoga. Okay. <laughs> and sure enough, he's going up and down. So if if I'm if I'm as sprightly as that man at the age of 75, I'm going to be very happy with myself. <laughs> Assuming I survive that long, so we, we get tanker knees uh, after a while. So I'm, I drive a desk now. I don't uh, I don't drive the tank so much because you get promoted enough times. You're not allowed to have fun anymore. Uh, but uh, jumping up and down off the tanks eventually gets to your knees. Ah, yeah, okay, yeah, I can imagine. So I'm sure it'll happen to me if I clamber up and down on the museum tanks enough times. I, I remember getting up on the first tank. It was like what I'm doing, and then I realized, okay, you can step on the tracks. Yeah. So if, if you're watching this, you ever have get the chance, go on the side. You use the tracks as, as basically. Unless it's got a side skirt. Yeah. Do you have? Do you, I mean side skirts. Well, actually, you 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 have experience. What is it with side skirts? Because I think modern tanks some have them, some don't have them. Back it's back and forth. Um, well, they do two things. Uh, if you look, let's say at the M1, the first three side skirts are ballistic. I mean, they're, they're very thick, they're very heavy, and they're made of armor. Uh, the ones after that are not. And it's done for a couple of reasons. One is it reduces the signature, the thermal signature, a little bit because you've got a, a gap. Oh, okay. uh, the, the side skirts don't heat up quite the same way. Second, it definitely reduces the dust signature. So especially if you look at, let's say, a Challenger 2 in, in Iraq, you see the skirt comes all the way down and then it's got uh, fabric lift, you know, three inches off the bottom. Uh, and the third thing is that there is a, still a pre-detonating effect uh, that if you, if you're lucky and the you know the RPG hits you the right way, it'll it'll detonate against the side skirt and it may not uh, may not detonate against the main hull. The dust signature. I've never never heard about this. So this is actually really an important thing, or is it just? Well, what? Bear in mind, what, what if you're especially in Iraq? You know, there's long lines of sight and lots of sand. Are you going to see the tank first, or are you going to see the dust first? And the dust will stay up for, I mean, even once you stop moving, the dust is going to be still clouding around for the next, you know, X many minutes. And then you have the issue of, uh, of even the dust getting into the engine. So, I mean, the, the Abrams has a turbine engine. It sucks a lot of air in that has to be cleaned. Now, they've gotten better at the cleaning. They even have self-blowing air filters now. Uh, but uh, another video that I did was on the Crusader tank. And you look at the air intakes and they're on the back fender directly above the track. 
That's well. where the air intakes are. <laughs> I mean, if you wanted to make a more troublesome location to put the air filter, I don't know if there is a better place you can put them. I guess you know, the track goes round and round and round, and the air comes up, and the first thing it goes, oh, air filter! Boom! <laughs> Uh, that's probably not the best uh, uh, location. Interesting. I mean, of course, yeah, then, then the dust signature, especially, I guess, if you don't have air separate, which wasn't the case in Iraq, would be also quite more problematic because uh, spotting it, it over. It would be. Uh, it's, uh, it, it is interesting. So one, one of the other things that I, I get, again, possibly oh, I am over, uh, over evangelical about is um, operator level stuff. The, the the things that the crewmen have to do to get the most out of their tank. Again, this is you know not top trumpsy sort of stuff. And I, I I sort of differentiate my videos from other people because I don't stand in front of a tank and just say, this was a Yeg Tiger, it has a 12.8 centimeter. I can look it up on, on Wikipedia, thank you very much. Um, but the things that perhaps you might not think about when you're the, when you're in the tank. So uh, I, 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 when I say that the Sherman has better optics, let's say, than a Panther, people go, are you crazy? Look at the field of vision, the 28 degrees, whatever it is, field of vision on a, on a Panther's sight. And it had such clarity and it had such magnification. Yes. Now put that into practice. If you were, let, because the Germans are on the defense, more often than not when Panther was around. So how do, how do you using modern tactics to say, which I presume are more or less equivalent to World War II at the tank level, you're in an ambush position. So what you want to do is you want to hide yourself as much as possible behind some cover until the enemy is within the engagement area, then you will engage. So a Panther gunner is sitting down in his turret, looking through his sight, what is he going to see? He is going to see the hill in front of him, the dirt, because that's, all, that's where the sight is. And he is purely reliant on the commander behind him going, uh, yeah, Gunner, uh, when I tell you to engage, we're going to drive forward. Your target is going to be a Sherman. When you, when you see the world outside, the easiest way to find this target is look for the bright red barn. Well, I know you can't see it right now. Tell you what, come up here. C come up here out of my hatch. I'll, I'll stand up for a second. See, you see that barn there? Yeah, okay, you're, the, the Sherman's coming that way. Get back down. All right, so the target will be to the left of that uh, at about 8 o'clock. So you can go to 8 o'clock, whatever, 10 o'clock. And driver advance, the driver goes forward, forward, forward. The gunner sees sky, because now the tank is going up a hill or whatever. Okay, down, 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 down. Oh, there's the barn. Now, where's that tank? Oh, I can now see the tank in perfect clarity because I have such a good quality uh, optic by Zeiss. Okay, now I'll range to the target. It's going at this speed. And finally, fire. This takes time. During this amount of time, as the tank is advancing forward, a cloud of smoke, and then, then suddenly see this huge turret of a panther pointing at, or a panzer IV, whatever, pointing at you, the allies are there going, what's that over there? Oh dear. And they're either taking cover or they're shooting first or whatever. Now, you compare that to a Sherman command uh, gunner, who, while the tank is completely hidden, he's looking through his periscope, which is on the roof of the tank, so you can't see very much except the binoculars of the gunner and the of the commander and then the gunner side. So he knows exactly what it is he's looking at when the commander says, uh, gunner, your first target will be the Mark IV there. Your second target will be that half track to your right. You see them? Yeah, I see him. And he's aiming and he's got the range already. I mean, it's not a complicated sight anyway, so the accuracy will be reduced, but he will get the first shot off because as soon as the driver says, 
you know, uh, the gunner commander says driver advance. He drives up, gun clear. He doesn't. He doesn't need to. Do, he just a little adjustment, and he engages. So he's going to get the first shot off, before possibly even before the uh, the target knows he's under attack. And if you can get the first shot off, you are in a very significant position of advantage. Yeah. But unless you're actually used to gunning a tank, this is the sort of thinking that people tend not to not to not to assess. And you can paint that for maintenance. You can put that for radio communications or internal tank communication. All these things that you do as a tanker that people just look at the statistics and say, "Oh, that's more important." I mean. With, with terms of logistics, there's of course this important aspect. I think there's this, this famous US, US Marine General quote from amateur study tactics, professional study, study logistics. logistics. And of course, I think this is to a certain degree a very American centric view because America basically, if you leave aside Canada or Mexico, if, they want, if you want to fire off one shot, you have to go across one or another bloody ocean for several thousand miles to even shoot at an enemy or even see an enemy. Whereas, for instance, Germany or something, yeah, they basically can declare war on a bunch of countries and not to think too much about a, a, man, a menu of countries to invade. <laughs> yeah, there are several countries around and, and it's not like we have to cross an ocean for that. So there's, of course, that in the US forces, you always have a stronger focus on logistics. Right. And, and it comes down to the design. So, I mean, you look at a, you know, a designer, an MAN, who's coming up with a Panther, it's got like, hmm, do I have to worry too much about how easy it is to transport and sustain a Panther tank in the Philippines? And the answer is probably no, I don't think it really crossed his mind. But if you're, if you're sitting in Detroit and you're realizing that you've got to design a tank to fight the Japanese in the Pacific and the Germans in Europe, the tank you're going to come up with is going to be different by necessity. And I think that's another thing that a lot of people will forget is that when they are comparing their tanks, they're comparing the Panzer or the Tiger or whatever, or the T-34 with the Sherman or the Crusade, whatever, they're forgetting the entire strategic picture that yeah. the system is designed to operate in. So just because the Sherman was the best tank in the world for the US doesn't mean it was the best tank in the world. It all depends on what your, your uh, perspective is, your viewpoint of what defines best tank. And yes, the, the gunner sitting in a Sherman in France in 1944 probably doesn't care about all these logistical issues that happened before he got his tank. All he cares about is, will his tank work? Will he, can he, will he survive? More accurately, will he survive? That's all he cares about, I yeah. guess. <laughs> and statistically, we've shown that he probably will. But for the, when you're looking about structuring and fielding a force, you've got to look at the, at the bigger picture. I mean, this is also with the resources. I think initially the Germans actually wanted to copy the T-34, but I think one uh, material, one metal was not in and the end sufficient number, so that this, they scrapped this idea. So this is also, you have to look at the resources and, and resources in every way, like minerals, metals, also what kind, how, how many engineers or, for instance, I mean, back yep. in military history, the Austrians actually had had this view that they couldn't introduce, I think, a certain weapon or certain aspects in the country because they knew they had a lo lot of uneducated peasants. So they thought, okay, we can't copy actually the Prussians. So this is also, in this case, I think they were wrong probably, but this also have to come into consideration if you take the whole picture. And usually people go, yeah, let's just compare the, the tanks. I mean, it's, it's a, a big measuring cost. It, it, it is. I mean, look, look, how many people in the US knew how to drive a car? versus how many people in, Ger in 1942, let's say, knew how to drive a car versus in Germany. 
And the figures was like one in three in the U.S. and one out of twenty. Yeah, that's in a, Germany, I think, something like that. Yeah, the, the car industry was completely underdeveloped in 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 Germany, but the the motorcycle industry was very well developed. This was the reason why the Germans had the Gradschützen, the motors, a lot of motorcycle uh, recon units mm -hmm. instead of, of whereas others had armored vehicles or other vehicles right. in this case. But you can't you can't supply an army with motorcycles. I mean, you got to have trucks and, and jeeps or whatever. For the recon thing, it, it, they really worked, but I think after Barbarossa, they were basically, well, gone as well. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's not as if the Americans didn't have sidecars of their own. They just looked at it and said, why are we bothering this? We have Jeeps. Yeah. I mean, what can you do with a motorcycle sidecar that you can't really do with a Jeep? And the answer is not a hell of a lot, really. It uses less fuel. No, there we go. Strategic consideration for the Germans. They had petrol. They, they didn't have much of it. They could create more by cracking coal, which you can, apparently you can't do, make diesel out of. Uh, which is part of the reason it went petrol. So I can see a strategic reason why the Germans may have gone with the motorcycle, even if they could have produced the Jeep. Yeah. I don't know if they would have. I probably would have stuck with the Jeep anyway. But you can make an argument. And again, how many people think about that? What's the fuel consumption rate of a motorcycle battalion versus the fuel consumption rate of a uh, you know, Panzer Grenadier battalion? I mean, some people think about V-Nords too. And, yeah, okay. And, and, yeah. and, and, <laughs> and some of our viewers also. <laughs> Unfortunately, when you're dealing with the internet masses, yeah, <laughs> we, we do open ourselves up for a little bit of, uh, <laughs> of flack. I mean, the thing is always, I, I think the term is, is, came from Nixon, we, we're always dealing with a silent majority sometimes, or we don't actually know, because sometimes the people who command, I mean, I get, two I get a few types of comments. There are regular comments where I don't have a strong feeling about them, there are sometimes really good comments, and then sometimes insanely let's call them weird comments, yeah. So it's, it's, it's quite surprising that I actually don't know how many people actually are having these views that sometimes represent in the more weird comments. True, um, but then again, to a large extent, I don't think I care. Because I, I know that when I say that the Shermans were not death traps, I have the figures to back it up. Yeah. So even if it is an unpopular viewpoint, I know I'm right. Uh, and it's to, to a large extent you you've got to ask the question how much you how much are you supposed to care what, what really is the question is how much can you convince other people uh, because once you have this popular image or popular culture of something that that is known to be true and here's us in the corner in our little little section of YouTube on a, the screen yay big going actually we believe the following and here are our reference I mean you, you put your references and all you credit to you. I don't do that. I'm too lazy. Uh, I know I'm right. I guess I have to actually, oh, I'm not sure I agree with you. And then I'll go and I'll scan the document. I'll put it up on Imager or something. Oh, here's the official document. I've done that sometimes. But uh, so even if you, if you put your citation up there, then you go, well, you're, the source that you used was biased or, or you, you've cherry picked this out of context. There are some people that just won't accept that we, as in our little corner of YouTube, might actually have a minority but more accurate viewpoint. I mean, actually, most people stop with that lately on my channel. I think some people gave up with those comments. Oh, I still get plenty of them. <laughs> yeah, so only a couple of days ago on, uh, on YouTube, I got, I got this comment. It's kind of like, uh, in, in the same, you hate America because uh, you hate General Patton, you British person. I, A, I'm not British, and B, I'm an officer in the US Army. How can I hate America? Well, unless I'm, I guess I'm sabotaging from the inside or something. <laughs> But, but it's kind of these Search things that are taking, yeah, they're taking completely out of context. 
And so, I, I, sometimes you wonder. It's just, I, I, that's where I, I let my satire come in. I just put some sort of biting comment if, if I can. Yeah. Not very professional of me, I know, but sometimes I can't resist. And, and another aspect is, of course, um, I, I generally, who, I, I don't know outside of the intelligence officers who actually cared too much who was commanding what army or what division. I mean, of course, for the intelligence it's important, but generally I've never seen anything that there was like, Okay, we are facing now this enemy. The only thing I came up, I think, was once I heard this then about the Ardennes offensive, that because Rundstedt was in charge, that the Allies assumed that nothing would happen because he was more of a conservative guy. But outside of that, I think I never came across any of, and this was, I think, also a talk and not even read in a book, that I came any across that anybody cared about who was in command. To a large extent, that's right. I mean, so you're, you're sitting in, again, the Western Front, uh, late 44, you got the, uh, a couple of hundred thousand soldiers coming on your, your major industry area in the Ruhr, and you got Patton, he's down in the Lorraine. Yeah, he's doing a lot of kilometers a day, but he's down in the Lorraine. What's important in the Lorraine versus what's important in the Ruhr? I'm gonna focus my attention on this guy over here, and I don't care if that army is led by Mickey Mouse. 200,000 soldiers coming to my factories is going to put a serious crimp on my ability to make war. And, and what, there's something interesting I read today actually in the train and it's in, in Robert Zettino's The Wehrmacht Retreats and, and he notes there's this a kind of personalism in military history which um, there's a lot of focus usually on military commanders whereas in other fields it usually it's outside of this. So usually it's military genius, there's a lot of focus on this. Yeah. Also even among the professionals where he says in for instance in economics or social history they focus more on on, on the general people or more on, on the systems and everything yeah. so that's probably also in a certain way also reflected even among the professionals yeah it, it, it's, it's kind of like it's it's almost a badge of pride with some people you can tell on this battle it was this unit commander by this commander and i guess it's good to be able to know I mean, there's no harm in knowing it is it really important? I mean, again, it's something else to try to put out. It's tr things to think about. I'm not going to say I'm always right. I usually am. I'm not going to say I always am. Uh, but if I can at least start you thinking of outside of the box as to why something is happening, why, why exactly did they put the gun sight up here on the Sherman, whatever it was, uh, then I think I've, I've done what I've set out to do to a large extent. Yeah, and for me it's the same. I, I try to... to to teach people a certain degree to understand certain elements and guess that's my engineering background and, and I usually also skip on names mostly. I, I usually f uh, focus on the function for instance who was it was the head of the general staff but I sometimes don't even mention the name at all because most people will forget it or it's not that important at all Yeah. because who cares but ah the function is more important so, okay the guy in this function recommended this is way more important than like Brauchich said this I mean yeah, who was Brockwich again? Pretty important in the, if, if you're really into military history for Germany and Second World War, but if you're not professionally doing this or, or very going into deep, it doesn't matter that much. And it, it also matters depends more what, what his position was. It also depends on how good his PR agent was. Yeah. So every, every you know, Patton and Montgomery have great PR agents, and uh, someone like Devers less so. And or Guderian was excellent. Good, good, uh, yeah. I, I'm actually working on a video right now, Myth and Reality, because oh boy. In, in that case, you, 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 let's see if I can somehow figure out a way you can use these clips. So the, there's a clip of uh, an operation. I think that I asked uh, how how influential were Guderian and uh, Little Art. 
uh, and uh, the response from uh, Doyle, Doyle or Fletcher, one of the two is, well, that depends on who you ask. If you ask Guderian or Littleheart, they'll tell you. <laughs> if you ask somebody else, perhaps that wouldn't be such a great idea. Uh, and I asked the same question of uh, the Panzer Museum director, and he had a very, very similar answer. I mean, Guderian was hyped by nearly everyone, what I read up recently. There's basically, I think, the only people who criticized him so far was, was Corum, James Corum. Yeah. And, and now um, Markus Perlman, I think, at least Perlman, and he did, a, I think, his PhD, and he, he's also the, the chief of the military history mm. research center right now on Mechanisierung des Krieges, and he basically went through all, he went through his, on the side, on his memoirs, and then compared it with what is written in the archives, and he also yeah. called out a lot of recent historians who just take, for instance, the claim from Guderian that he was against the Battle of Kursk and the early deployment of the Panther. Yeah. Nothing at all in the archives nothing at all whereas for instance there were guys in the Oberkommando des Heeres in the OKH in the mm -hmm. uh, Army High Command who actually were advocating against the Battle of Kursk and there are written elements in there and there's a lot of stuff with Guderian which which is quite interesting which which I also believe for yeah. way too long now in, in fairness uh, Ralph did make a, a good observation a part of the reason was simply because by the time the war started Guderian was in a position to be famous because he was yeah. in command. There's, there's not two, you know, two ways about it. Whereas people like Lutz or uh, or uh, Trukhachevsky, by, by the time the war started, they'd, they'd have been removed from the scene yeah. or, or retired, what have you, forcibly retired in some cases. And Trukhachevsky, uh, yeah. <laughs> and so that's why we. And that's that's a reasonable argument because if they weren't there to have your name attached to something, why would you? But again, you know, other things again, logistics. Uh, Knudsen, K-N-U-D-S-E-N. You know who he was? Mm. Please tell me yes. He was a Norwegian guy in the US. It was his job uh, to basically look at the entire US manufacturing system and figure out how to gear it for war. And he started back about two years before the Americans entered the war. So when they, they joined in uh, and he was, made, he was made a general. And if I, were, uh, uh, if I recall, he was paid like one dollar. I might be mixing that up with uh, E.T. Keller. And uh, basically, if it wasn't for this guy organizing the entire of the US manufacturing base, would the, would the Allies have been as successful as they were? And incredibly important position. One of the war winners of, of, of the entire war, most people don't know who he was. And I'm, I'm not going to hammer you for not knowing because, again, it's very, very common. He, he didn't wear a uniform, uh, usually. He, he did actually have one, but you know, he was a civilian. He was, he was an industrialist. And nobody cares. I mean, with Guderian, it's also, he wrote his memoirs. I mean, it's also very interesting. If you look at the title, in, in German, it's Erinnerungen an eines Soldaten. Memoirs of a general, okay. memories of a, uh, of a, of of a soldier. soldier. Yeah, and in in English it's Panzer leader. leader. Yeah, so oh, so I did I, not know that. Okay, I mean, it's, it's typically German. It's like this mundane title, and then there's a very marketable title, Panzer leader. Yeah, and and he I, one of the earliest book I, I read was was his memoirs, and he can he he can really write well. So this and and he also I mean he he was admired by guys from the Panzerwaffe as far as I know. And, and this is, he inspired, and, and also with the book, if you read that, I remember when I read this book, you, you wanted to start Steel Panthers back then, the yeah, game and yeah. everything else on Panzer General. And my friends and everyone had the same experience. So, so this, to a certain degree, it comes down that he wrote one of the, and, and the book is, I think it has um, around 35 editions and translated into 14 to 15 languages. So basically, this is a whole huge PR thing and everyone yeah it's kind of if you, I would love to figure out a way of taking a survey 
that how many people have read Panzer Leader and how many people have read, let's say, The Blitzkrieg Legend by Colonel Dr. Karl Hauts Freezer? Yeah. I said, one is definitely a better reference book than the other, but who, who, who reads it most? Even Freezer believed that what Guderian was against Kursk. That's the interesting thing. Perlman ah. quoted out this because this was, I, for instance, with Little Heart, I, it's, he was an early war. Uh, he was yeah. basically yeah. after war. It was, it was more no problem, but, afterwards, yeah. but But Perlman notes Freezer, Wegner, and, and it's like, oh, really? That's, that's the, that's the high-ranking... German military historians, even those guys fell for Guderian or didn't look at the, at the data again. Well, again, there's some stuff that is just so basic that perhaps people don't, don't question their foundations. So, I mean, again, the Sherman was used for infantry support, therefore it didn't need a good gun. Okay, well, let, let's say that the, that wasn't, and, and there's two, two or three different ways. Some people say, oh, this is wrong, because if you look at how an armored division was supposed to be used, it was, it was uh, for deep operations and so on. Well, yeah, that's fine for the armored division, but the more tanks were in the infantry divisions as the attached tank battalion. And so, yes, their function was infantry support. What is infantry support? It's coming along with a big-ass gun and shooting up things that the infantry are objecting to. And, and if I was an infantryman and I was being shot at by a panzer, I would object to that. And I would be very pleased if my supporting tank would destroy the enemy tank. This is a function of infantry support. And people think infantry support is just shooting a HE at things. No. It's not. The Sherman was designed to kill tanks. But nobody really questions it because it has become so ingrained in our culture that, oh, we have the tank destroyer doctrine, which if you look at it, has nothing to do with attacking at all. Uh, and you have this thing about the low-velocity gun being better HE. It is true, it was a better HE, but it wasn't selected because it was only good at HE. It was selected because the 37mm gun that was the standard anti-tank gun at the time was useless. <laughs> it's, uh, but again, people don't question. So you, you get interviews with a lot of the, uh, the higher-level people, and again, I, this may reflect a little bit what you're talking about with the, the cult of personality in military history, it's that they're always focusing on these, these large, large issues and sometimes they don't question the base assumptions, 95% of which are correct. But every now and then it's nice to just go back and make sure that your base assumption is correct. And I, I think what some of these things like uh, the, the tank doctrine or the tank destroyer doctrine that the US has that everybody knows is true because nobody has questioned it and, uh, except for outside of the, the specialist press or whatever has questioned it for 40 years. Yeah, it's, this is the issue. Yeah. Anyway, um, so what else is there to say? <laughs> I mean, well, we've, been, we, we've, we've murdered his batteries and his graphics card. He probably came here thinking, ah, I'll just video this for 20 minutes. And yeah. then, he, then he forgot I'm Irish. <laughs> and I will rabbit on and bore the hell out of him and you and everybody that listen to me for <laughs> is, is this something we didn't, I mean, we didn't cover the Pacific yet. We didn't cover the Pacific. I, I should also say, we, this is not pre-scripted. It's just, okay, start it. We'll just sit here, we'll start rambling and we'll see where we end up. Uh, so what would you like to discuss about the Pacific? I mean, was, was, there, was there a specific um, doctrine for deploying the, the tanks in the Pacific or, or developed it over time? Well, that depended if you were a Marine or not. So you remember that a lot, the, the, the Army gets short shrift in the Pacific. The, the Army actually conducted, if I recall, more amphibious assaults than the Marines did. But the Marines got there first and uh, 
justifiably they get a fair bit of attention for what they did. And the marine tanks were used uh, differently uh, somewhat to the American tanks because obviously you didn't have massive battalions being attached uh, to divisions quite the same way. Um, I think the best way I can answer that is I can direct you books uh, by somebody like Ken Estes, uh, Marines Under Armour. Uh, is the name of one of the books and he was a marine tanker himself and he became a historian and that's, that's his area of particular focus and he was very good at it um, but again the, the same equipment was coming off the production lines for the Pacific as it was from Europe so you then have the issues of okay you got to get them over there you got to support them what kind of fuel do you need how do you get the fuel there uh, and so on of course Ken will be the first man to tell you that this whole thing about common logistics with the landing craft and the diesel is complete rubbish. It was just, we want tanks, what's available? Oh, the diesels are available, we'll take that, thank you very much. Um, then, of course, you had the problem that the, the opposition were um, not the same as the Germans, because yep. you, uh, you fire an armor-piercing round at the Japanese tank, and it'll go in one side, out the other, and, oh, thank you for the extra ventilation, much obliged. <laughs> uh, so you, you start firing high explosive at them, uh, and, uh, of course, canister was the big thing. Um, I'm currently reading uh, the exploits of the Australian Army in Vietnam and how they used ca canister rounds, which was basically uh, like a, a huge shotgun. They were still using canister rounds? Oh yeah! And then you go, you go one level, you go further into beehive rounds. And you, if, if you want to see uh, the, the 152mm that the Sheridan fired in Vietnam, it's like 16,000 flechette darts. And mm -hmm. th they talk about stapling the Viet Cong to trees. Uh, but one of the advantages that the canister round had, um, and uh, again, I'm reading this from the Centurion perspective in Vietnam, but they said that they noticed this in World War II as well, is def uh, defoliaging, uh, or defoliation. Uh, you fire this thing, and what was a nicely camouflaged bunker behind everything suddenly has all the, all the leaves stripped away. And you can see, so it wasn't as much the lethal effect as much as, okay, the enemy are somewhere over there, Let's fire a can round at it. Oh, I see the bunker now, load AP. And they'll fire the AP and HE rounds at the bunker once, once the canister had been fired. So that's part of the reason that little, little guns like the 37 millimeter on the Stuarts and the Lees were still so effective was that you could fire the canister rounds out of those. Uh, and of course, yeah. because, because you know, the opposition tanks and anti-tank guns weren't fantastic, you could still use these semi-obsolescent vehicles in the Pacific and it worked out very nicely. Um, then, again, there was no priority for the tank destroyers, for example. Yes, some tank destroyers, M10s and M18s, did go to the Pacific. Pershings eventually made it to, to the Pacific. But uh, if you look at the production of, say, Sherman's, you'll see that uh, although the Army said after January of '44 everything we build is a 76mm gun, and you go, oh, no, no, the, the Americans saw that they, they kept bouncing off the Panthers, so they decided we need to build the 76, and then they introduced the 76. Well, no, they, they made this decision in September 43. But the Army decided after January 44, they didn't quite make it, after January 44, we are no longer building 75mm tanks. But they kept producing them because the Marines are going, we like the 75, please, and so the land lease people and so on and so forth. Uh, so you still have that little dis discrepancy between the necessities of the independent theater. But when it comes down to the actual creation of the vehicles, they just said, okay, look, we've discovered uh, putting the electrical wiring on the hull of the tank is bad in the Pacific because of the moisture or whatever. So all we will do, we will design this tank to have the electrical wiring higher up. 
And we're not going to distinguish between sending it here and sending it there. We're just going to build them the same way all the time. So there's no like Fulpin modification yeah. for, for a Sherman. It's got, like, it is designed to operate in Alaska, in uh, Mon you know, Mondeo, California, in the desert, in uh, the jungles of Florida and Louisiana. So it's the other great thing about the US is we have such a variety of terrain that we can develop these vehicles in that we know that when we finally send them 3,000 miles, they will operate. Yeah. I mean, this is an interesting point with, with like the reaction, like we need the 76 millimeter gun because it bounced off the pan and, and this, and because they think this is the same notion that like the Tiger was developed as a reaction to that and that. And, and if you look at all the development history, it's usually those, those vehicles needed several years to develop and to refine and everything. It's, it's usually it was not a reaction to some, some combat Yeah, there, there's nothing wrong with the Tiger as a concept. It was a heavy breakthrough tank, yes, it was going to take more maintenance and be tougher to transport. But they knew that when they designed it. So if all you're doing is, oh, we'll take the Tigers, the, the Schwerer Abteilung, and we'll punch a hole, and then let the, the, you know, the Panzer threes and fours go marauding. Then we will take the Tigers, bring them back in for maintenance, we'll refit them, we'll repair them, and they will be ready for the next time that we have to use a heavy assault. That was fine. That was the, the problem was the Tiger started being used as another medium tank, as another a fire brigade tank. And it was taken out of context from the doctrine in which it was developed starting, I think, 1938 or 1939. Uh, same, you know, same with Panther. Pan uh, Hilary Dorr is quite specific that Panther was not developed as a response to T-34. It was developed perhaps more quickly yeah. And it took certainly some of the influences, they, they learned some of the lessons, but it wasn't designed as a counter to the T-34, it was a tank that we're going to build anyway. I mean, this is this general, all people think like you develop a plane or a tank like in a few months. It's not going to happen. I mean, it's the same with the, when they, usually again to the Air Force with the message from 262. Yeah. And people say, oh, the prototype was ready in, back then. Yeah, a bloody prototype. <laughs> well, you, well, again, you have the issue with the, the Pershing. Uh, how, how, how many people say that, and, and yeah, God help us, Belton Cooper's book has much to, to, to shoulder the blame on this. Uh, the US Army could have selected Pershing as its standard tank for D-Day, and then the, the Americans wouldn't have had anywhere near as many problems. And so we, yes and no, there are some problems with this. So the prototype was built whenever the hell the prototype was built. I, th I think uh, late 43, early, early 44, can't recall off the top of my head. I need to look it up. See, I don't know everything off the top of my head. Um, but once it was built, then 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 had to test it. Yeah. And as late at the end of 44, the US Army is still saying this tank is not acceptable for service. It is not reliable enough. Oh, and by the way, the engineers don't want it because they don't have their bridges strong enough to build Pershings. And, and was, this was proven at Remagen. Hey, we got this wonderful breakthrough at Remagen. Quick, cross the bridge with everything we got. And the Shermans get across and the Pershing commander looks at it going, uh-uh, we ain't crossing that. And the engineers, of course, didn't have the equipment. It took them days to, to, get the, to get the bridging equipment for the, uh, for the Pershings to come along. Um, so that was part of it. But again, it goes back to it took a full year of testing before the, the Army finally said, look, this, this T-26E1 tank, it has potential. Keep working on it, but we are not going to make the battlefield a testing zone. Yeah, I mean, one year of testing is like insane amount of time because people always think, oh, okay, if, as you told, like with the gun, okay, we adapt this. It's, it's not, this is one thing, I guess, nowadays, which we, I mean, we are older. Yeah. We, we still 
I, I, I remember the times when I wanted to know how much frontal arm or a panther had, I had to go to the library. I had to spend several <laughs> hours of my time to find out this minor detail and not five seconds with my, with my smartphone or a few years ago when there wasn't a smartphone with a computer and an internet connection. You see, that's why I don't practice law. I have a law degree, but back then I had to go to the library and pull down a two, yeah. two to 300 year old book. And now I, I'm talking to the wife who also has a law degree and she actually works as a lawyer. And so, yeah, I just got a LexisNexis and I'm bringing it up and there's a yeah. case right in front of me. <laughs> and, and this is the information back then. It, 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 it was transmitted even very slowly and everything. So everything was very different. This is also when, when people bring up like um, Operation Barbarossa and that the Germans didn't learn from Kalkingol from the Battle of Nomohan, yeah. where the Japanese faced, faced the with the Soviet Union, it's like yeah, so nobody <laughs> cared about this this, 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 this battle. There, there, I think there are two or three monographs opposed what it were written ever about this. And the, and I think the, the Japanese even internally ne nearly never told the Navy or anyone else. I mean, for a certain degree, the, the, the loss at the Battle of Midway, the Navy yeah. really, uh, I think it took several years until they really told the army how much they lost there. So, so the secrecy and everything and, and people are like, yeah, the, I know. I, I know about the Battle of Kagigo because I played it in one computer game, and now everybody should have known back then. No, nobody gave, a, nobody cared about the Battle of uh, Nomohan or Kagigo. I mean, there's especially this very interesting aspect. The German Army High Command, I think, in 1938, wrote uh, they had an article, um, a, a report about the performance of the Japanese in in this uh, Sino-Japanese War. Okay. And, and they actually, it was quite interesting, there's some aspects in there that they, they wrote in, in the final part. It's basically, I'm not entirely sure if it's for political reasons or for ass-covering reasons. Yeah. Because they basically argue, well, they could be doing well against the Western force and we consider in this context the Russians a Western force, but it could also not be. So basically, I think there was one and a half page conclusion at it. It goes this way and this way and this way and this way. <laughs> They're now, just covering Yeah, both and I'm not sure if they're covering the ass or if it's for political reasons for the alliance thing. Gotcha. And, and, and it's really interesting to, to read and, and, and you see how they consider the Japanese in a, in a, yeah, we are not sure about this and we're not sure if we can consider them a Western force because I think this was the main question. Would they be able to fight a Western force as well because they're fighting the Chinese, which they didn't consider Western force. So even everything in Kalkin Gold, the Germans could have always gone the way, well, now we don't consider the Japanese a Western yeah. force. So their experience with the Russians, which we yeah. consider a Russian, uh, a Western yeah. force well, in this we'll context, doesn't get yeah. exactly. Yeah. Uh, we don't, I, I, again, that kind of segues onto another problem that I think a lot of people will forget. So we, we've already talked about the people that just consider the, the, the hard statistics of tanks and armor. And then you know, we've explained the advantage of, okay, let's consider logistics and so on. But we're still talking about materiel. But war ultimately is a human activity. And it, no matter how good your military is, you are going to be subject to the same limitations of human capability. And communication, that most fundamental of human tasks that separates us from so much of the rest of the animal kingdom, that and using knives and forks and getting, getting dressed, usually. Um, it's <laughs> and we invented air conditioning. Anyway, uh, the one thing that, we, that distinguishes us, we screw up so badly and can win or lose wars accordingly. And, and again, go back to the Sherman at 76. So why did the Allies, the Americans, leave their 76 millimeter tanks in England? Because it seemed like they didn't think it was worth the effort. 
But if you look at the documentation coming out of Italy at the same time, or a couple of months prior, it's like, we'll take every 76mm gun you can give us. That information did not somehow get transferred through DC back to London to, go, to filter down to the battalion commanders who said, we don't need this thing. Because look, uh, the, 70, the, the tanks that we have so far are doing fantastically. Look what's happening in Italy. They've got 75mm tanks mainly. They're working their way up Italy. We weren't all the way. Tigers, we met tigers. We met tigers in Sicily. We met tigers in Africa. We, who won? Who holds Italy and Africa now? We do. So the simple act of communication can win or lose a war. It, it's, it's amazing. People often don't talk about it, except maybe unless it's directly relevant. Oh, the French relied on telephone systems and not radio in 1940. True, very accurate. But again, you're looking at a technical problem to a human issue. It didn't matter if it was radio or, land or dispatch rider or telephone. They fundamentally didn't talk to each other. Yeah, I mean, this is also interesting in, in terms of the Pacific again. I mean, there were the flying tigers in, in, in China fighting the Japanese already. And basically the reports, I think from Shinova's his name, they yep. didn't really come through and they, they still assumed, yeah, the Japanese, the planes, and yes, everything is not that well. And, and he, was already, he was fighting them. And, and I talked to this a guy who did, um, Justin, who did a master thesis about the American view or intelligence on the Japanese. And he said, yeah, the thing is, this was one guy yeah and there were 20 other guys with 20 other sources that actually had a different view so even he had experience in this kind of, and was fighting indirectly he wasn't recognized at this point in yeah. time it was just drawn under the sea of, of information that was out there as well that was co contradictory there was there was a lovely line in the in this australian book uh, was the canister on fire is the name of it and uh, the Australian soldiers were complaining about uh, the lack of information hand up because they were doing rotations every six months, I think it was. And uh, the guy said, look, we are breaking our necks to capture North Vietnamese and VC, and we interrogate the hell out of them. Why are we not interrogating Americans and Australians coming back from Vietnam when we don't even have to capture them? Uh, again, the information is there. So uh, we're doing the trip into Iraq, and uh, so 2004, 2004 this was and we're seeing the gun trucks going by so this is like a cargo truck that you put machine guns everywhere and you put fake armor or maybe even you take an m113 body put it on the back and i'm looking at this going okay we did this in vietnam but for the life of me i do not know was this somebody who had known from his his reading or communication or the information that filtered down to him that we had done this in vietnam Oh, if this was just a, a smart guy who saw the problem and came up with his own solution independently when he didn't need to. And I, it is my suspicion that even in today's military, we don't look enough to the history to see what we've done. I mean, actually, the, the thing about Vietnam is very interesting. In, in this book, I forgot the name. I will put it in the description. There was this notion. He, he looked at, he looked at the, all the data for Vietnam and, and he talked to the guys as well and he noted that there was a certain circle about I think, when the offensive happened and everything and it was basically everyone knew this circle to a way but he never saw it in actual documentation because everyone who experiences left already yeah so this was really like i think the, it was basically i think in, in winter there was always the offensive or in early spring or something and then because due to the monsoon nothing happened to a certain degree then and so it was always this pattern this went all for all these years of the war 
but was never really addressed in any in any view. It was quite interesting to read this. Yeah. Well, the, the, then you get into bigger philosophical problems about these rotations, uh, these expeditionary wars, Iraq, Afghanistan, 15 years. Obviously, you can't have one soldier on the ground in 50, for 15. Well, I guess you could. I mean, the British probably did it in India or whatever, but. Uh, uh, there has to be a transfer of information somehow and you have that balance how long can you leave somebody in country before especially with a volunteer military they give up and say I've had enough I'm not going to not going to join the army versus so short that you don't have time to learn anything yeah uh, and then hand off your information before you go on uh, but uh, I mean that's much as possible we took over the base in Afghanistan we had what we call a battle drill book and it's like react to indirect fire this is the process that you do for indirect fire Re react to direct fire and as we're there, we're, we're realizing, okay, they've already done the work for us. Uh, but we have a battalion staff that's getting bored. Ooh, we don't have a zombie defense battle drill. So we set about creating a zombie defense battle drill to put into the book. And, and we did the full staff work on it to exercise the staff. And uh, of course, we had the Afghan army liaison officer with us. So just, so we're not, you know, just, so we're, just so we're not copying what's already been done. Do you guys have a zombie defense battle drill? The Afghan officer is going... <laughs> yeah, yeah, zombies. What's a zombie? Huh. Yeah, well, okay, well, may, may, maybe you don't have zombies in that. Oh, you call them some other name. So it's, we, we describe what a zombie is. The, the guy just looks at us like we're crazy. No, we have no such thing in Afghanistan. Okay, liability number one. The, our allies cannot identify the enemy. <laughs> <laughs> And we come up with all these different reactionary tactics. So, you know, it's going to list our final offensive line on our side of the Afghan divide because, you know, they're obviously a hazard. And uh, we had to, you know, have to decide are we going to go for style points or are we going to go for effectiveness? So, okay, we'll go with artillery with airburst fuses because it's going to you know, get the head. Yeah. Uh, but just in case it doesn't work that well, um, if we did do ground impact, then that would at least provide bits of body flying everywhere, which is visually more appealing. But then you got to deal with the crawlers, but yeah. have no legs. So we have a road construction unit on the base. So we'll get the road roller and we'll go out and we'll roll over the zombies. <laughs> and then we left that in the book. And when we transferred over, we handed the book to the next unit. <laughs> I have never, if you are a part of this unit that took over our base with the zombie defense battle drill, please let me know. Soldiers can do strange things when they're bored. <laughs> but, uh, but again, it was all for the exercise. So, I mean, it was silly, but it was a useful exercise. <laughs> I, I really wonder how I named this, this, this thing now. I guess, I guess from North Africa to, to Normandy, to the Pacific, to, <laughs> to Afghanistan. Zombies in Afghanistan. And, and meanwhile, going a bit over to Iraq as well. <laughs> again, this is, this is your fault for interviewing an Irishman. <laughs> the only thing we're missing are a couple of pints. Yeah, actually, don't drink. Oh, fine, I'll drink. I'll drink your pint. Yeah, that that's yeah. works out for me. That's that's <laughs> excellent. <laughs> All right. Well, I, I think we're probably rambling on long enough. And yeah. you, I, I, your battery is going to die again on us before probably, before probably. we finish so, up. So. so now now let's record the ending. <laughs> yeah. So thank you very much for this interesting talk. No, it's been a lot of fun. Obviously, we've killed your battery. It's just as I had said we would. So I guess I jinxed you. Yeah, I guess we we made it a, a third time now. And be sure to check out Chifton's channel. I will link it in the description and also on screen now. So yeah. as always, thank you for watching and see you next time. Bye-bye. <laughs>